This morning, I want to share with you on the thought, follow the fire. Follow the fire. Um, as you know, we began a series. The word series doesn't sound very exciting. We began an adventure through the book of Acts and, and igniting the book of Acts in all of our heart and our listening. Um, Jeff has been preaching I'm speaking on both Sunday mornings and Wednesday nights, even doing a little bit of a deeper dive. Let me just encourage you, if you didn't hear last week's message that uh, Jeff preached on Acts chapter 2, go online, listen to that. Uh, really, really good stuff. So I would um, greatly appreciate that as we follow the fire. I love this subject. I love talking about the person of the Holy Spirit. He's a person that I met when I was 12 years old, and he has been an active part of my life for these many years. He is fantastic. Amen? I met Jesus on a Thursday night through salvation. The Holy Spirit came in and brought to me salvation. And then guess what? One week later, filled with this person by the name of the Holy Spirit. And my life has been changed ever since then. So as we begin this subject, I want to read to you a selection from Hebrews chapter 11. Um, you don't have to necessarily follow along. You can follow up on the screen. Don't want to read the whole chapter, but just a selection and, and, and hear this. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found, because God had taken him away. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was not to receive as his inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. By faith, Rahab, the prostitute, did not perish with those who were disobedient, because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies." And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jepheth, of David, and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight, women received back their dead by resurrection, some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mockings and floggings and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with a sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. Now when I read that, this extraordinary list of people. They are the bedrock and the foundation of our faith. How were these people, men and women alike, young and old, able to accomplish what they accomplished? Ultimately, for most willing to lay down their life for this cause. Something was different and unique about them. 
What it was is they encountered the living God who changed them. These were ordinary people. They were not part of SEAL Team 6. They were regular people. Some you would not have hired as an employee in your company. Some you would not have wanted babysitting your children. Some you would not have wanted as a next door neighbor. Some would probably still be in jail per our legal system right now. This was the fabric of the people that so encountered the living God that accomplished amazing things. How ordinary these people were with some serious flaws. This is who God works with. You fit in that category. This is who God works with. This is who God is looking for, not the SEAL Team 6s. The Bible teaches us that he's not chosen me, noble ones. He's not chosen many wise. He's chosen the foolish things of this world to confound the wisdom of man. That means no matter how ugly your resume looks or how ugly your life may have looked, that actually qualifies you even more to whom God is picking and whom God is calling. That we qualify. Isn't that good news? It's good news for me. Absolutely. Now let's read Acts chapter 2, 1 through 4, that gives us an account when the Holy Spirit explodes on the scene and the lives of 120 were changed forever. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them the utterance. Father, I thank you this morning that we are not here for a history lecture. Lord, you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. Lord, our prayer is that of Moses who prayed so long ago, Lord, teach us your ways that we might know you. Lord, you demonstrated to us in your word how you do things and that you're still doing those same things today. Your presence, your way. So Lord, open these passages before our ears and our, and our eyes. Touch the nerve center of where we live. Lord, not our cerebral cortex. Lord, that ultimately is not what needs to be touched today. Our hearts need to be touched by the fire of God today, that we too may find ourselves on such a list, as is the list of Hebrews chapter 11, that you may find us faithful. May those who come behind us find us faithful, Lord. But most of all, Lord, may it be pleasing in your sight, Lord Jesus. Thank you today, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. So we are going to follow the fire and we're going to follow the fire through three primary areas that were affected on the day of Pentecost. The heart, the home, and the highway. The H is there for memory's sake. Heart, home, and highway as we follow the fire. First one, the heart. Now, when you look at this account in, in, in Acts chapter 2, and I will tell you, if I were to hold up my Bible... The pages that list the Acts chapter 2 story is a very worn out page in my Bible. I have preached it. I have taught it. I have tried to live it. I've experienced all the time in Acts chapter 2. And as I was praying, I said, Lord, show us something. Show me something new. I don't know about you, but God's word is living and it's, and it's, and it's active and it's deep and it's good and it's nutritious and it's never old. So I asked, Lord, give me fresh eyes looking at this passage. 
eyes that's looked at this passage so many times in the past. So let me just share with you what I believe the Lord showed me, and I hope it will be a blessing to you. What was the first thing that was touched in those 120 believers that were gathered in the upper room? We'll get to them in a moment. But what was the, what was the first thing that was touched in them? Now, you would be right if you said their tongue was the first thing that was touched in them. But in reality, was it really the tongue, or was the tongue a marker of something else that was touched first? Was it a sign? Jesus told us that out of the abundance of the, what? Heart, the mouth speaks. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The tongues of fire were simply a a marker of something that was transforming their heart. It wasn't just that what they were saying, but something internally was combusting inside of them, and it hit the tongue first. And I believe there's a reason why it hit the tongue first. We see this heart change, and you can look at various characters throughout Scripture, but the easiest one to look at very quickly would be our friend, the Apostle Peter. Remember him? Peter, a little bit impetuous, a little bit zealous, promised that he would never deny the Lord, but we know what happened, right? Before the cock sounded off, he had denied Jesus three times out of fear, out of fear. But yet after the day of Pentecost, something so shifted in his life that this is what is said of Peter in Acts 2.14. says, Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, men of Judea and all who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you, give heed to my words. Now, if you know anything about Peter... This is not his normal behavior. He immediately steps out from the 12. It says he raises his voice and declared to them. This same guy not too long ago who was cowering in fear now takes a position of authority and begins to declare boldly to all those around and goes on to say, give heed to my words. Something happened in him that dramatically affected his speech and his talking. Do you see it? Now, why tongues? Why tongues? Perhaps this has been a subject that has been more maligned, more misunderstood, brought more division within the body of Christ, at least amongst Protestants, than than any other. But why tongues? Now, what I want us to do this morning is not take a micro look, right? Sometimes we like to take the micro look at tongues, or the prayer language and the prophetic aspect and what happened and what you got to say and all that. But let's, let's back up for a second, not hone in on the individual tree, but let's see the whole forest. What was God saying? What was God doing? Why the whole tongues thing to begin with? That provides the foundation. It provides, if I believe, it's the Rosetta Stone, which brings forth the interpretation of what it's all about. If you can get the macro, you could actually make better sense of the micro. You following me? Let's look at the tongue for a second. Let's look at our natural tongue for a second. Everybody, everybody has a tongue, right? You can reach out and grab it, and you know, it's, it's, it's right there. It's, it's, a, it's a pretty important little tool that we use. The tongue, the Bible has a lot to say about the tongue. We know we can go to James chapter 3 immediately and find out something significant about this natural tongue, this ability to to form words and to speak. Look at what the Bible says about the tongue. And the tongue is a what? Fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body. 
and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by what? Hell. Don't you love James? James just comes on the scene. He, he doesn't mince words. He just speaks his mind and says, the tongue is set on fire by what? Hell. Not jalapenos, not habaneros. <laughs> hell. It is set on fire by hell. The Bible also teaches us throughout that the power of life and death hinges on what? The tongue and what we say and the words that we form. We all know that words are important. We all know that Genesis 1.26 teaches us that we are all created in whose image? God, we are made in his image. Therefore, we know that God created everything in existence by what? A hammer? A, a, what did he use? He spoke, he spoke into existence. Out of nothing, he begot everything through his powerful words. And his word actually sustains all creation. The Bible teaches us that the sun is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, sustaining what? All things by his powerful words. Or his words are very important to God. And as part of his created, a part of his creation, we too can create things out of our words. Do you believe that? You can actually create things with your words? If you haven't figured that out yet, you need to learn it really, really quick. You can create things. Many of us in our life have had to work through difficult emotional bondages for words that were spoken to us or spoken about us, haven't we? Some of you have lives and, and, and people that have come your way that have spoken hurtful and harmful things to you or you've caught wind of other people saying things about you. You've been damaged, haven't you, by words? I have. You've also damaged other people with your words. There are people also that you know that you have hurt that you have damaged because of this. They have creative power. Many of us have been blessed by the words that have been spoken over us. I've had people speak profound things into my life through their tongue that has edified me and, and, and served as a launching pad to go forward. Words are powerful. They are creative in nature. Now, they can't do what gods can do. God can create something out of nothing. Ex nihilo, out of nothing, God create things. We can't create things out of nothing, but we can take something and make a lot with it. Look around the room at what we've been able to just create as human beings. Words are powerful. Now, God wants to deal with your speech. God wants to deal with your tongue. Now, in Isaiah chapter 6, we're not going to read the whole chapter, but you're probably going to be familiar with Isaiah 6, because Isaiah is having this encounter with God. In the year that King Uzziah died, he says, I saw the Lord, and he's, and he's having this incredible experience with the power of God in the temple. It's trains from the temple. God's presence is there. Seraphim are flying around. It is incredible. He is in the presence of God. How many of you understand this? He's in the presence of God. Now, it's very significant. When you get in the presence of God, do you ever experience conviction? A lot of conviction. Not condemnation, but conviction, right? Conviction begins to work on you in the presence of God. So, Isaiah just like all of us, he's in God's presence, and he's starting to experience something called conviction because he's in the holy presence of God. Note what the very first thing he is convicted by. You ready? Verse 5, Isaiah 6. Then I said, woe is me, for I am ruined because I am a man of what? Unclean lips. Isn't it interesting to me that in the presence of God, the first thing this guy Isaiah was convicted about was his unclean lips. 
He started there. He didn't start anywhere else. He started with my unclean lips. What is coming out of my mouth is unclean. You see, Jesus would teach us that it's not what goes into a man that defiles him. It's what comes out of a man that defiles him. A religious spirit operative in any church will focus way too much on what goes in and way too little on what comes out. You hear that? I'm going to say that again. How you know a religious spirit is operative in a church, there'd be an overemphasis on what goes in versus what comes out. You see? So what comes out of us is what defiles us. So Isaiah's having this experience. He's getting convicted by his unclean lips. And not only that, but all those around him who have unclean lips. Now, what is the remedy? What happens in Isaiah 6 and 7? It says that the, one of the seraphim, one of these special created angelic beings around the throne, flew to me with a what? A burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. The first thing, he was convicted of his tongue, and he addressed the tongue with fire and heat. And it says, In that moment, he is forgiven. Yes, he is forgiven. Isn't that great to be forgiven? Yes, it's great to be forgiven, but this coal upon the lips of Isaiah did more than just brought forgiveness. He also says that your iniquity is taken away. Your iniquity is taken away. See, many of us get so preoccupied with our forgiveness. Thank God for forgiveness. But there's more than just forgiveness in your Christian life. It says the iniquity is taken away. That's the Hebrew word avon, which can be also translated depravity. He's saying your depravity is now taken away. What does that mean? That your sin, that thing that used to control you, that used to dominate you is no more. It's gone. You're forgiven and you are set free. Buy one, get two free. It's it's a good deal. It's not just enough to be forgiven, but to be empowered to live this holy life by the fire of God. The power to live holy. The first thing the Holy Spirit is after, I believe, is our tongue because the tongue is a reflection of what is in your heart. It's also interesting to me that the one gift of the Holy Spirit that is encouraged above all is the gift of prophecy, which is primarily used by what? Your tongue. Your tongue. He wants our tongue. Everybody say, He wants my tongue. He wants my speech. And in this moment, we're finding out on the day of Pentecost, also in Isaiah chapter 6, we're finding out that the tongue is set on fire by who? Or by what? Hell. So how do we fight fire? With fire. In this moment, your tongue is tamed not by a self-help book, but it's tamed by fire. Fire fighting fire is what happens. The Holy Spirit knew what he was doing. He attacked the tongue with the fire of the Holy Spirit, changed the heart. Thus, what you say is changed. Tongues on fire by the Spirit of God versus tongues on fire by hell. What's going to win? Who would you bet on? Tongues set on fire by hell or tongues set on fire by the Spirit? Absolutely. He's after your tongues and he's after what you say. This was emblematic in the heart transfer of power from the kingdom into the heart. This is what was going on. He's after your tongue. We see it exploding in the heart. The second place, we see the fire exploding as we follow the fire into the home. Into the home. The heart, the home. To 120 people. Who were these 120 people? 
Who, who were they? Now, 120. Now understand, why only 120? Why 120? Do the math. Three years of Jesus walking the earth, doing miracles, setting people free, feeding thousands upon thousands at a, at a time. How many people in his three years? Thousands, right? Thousands and thousands of people touched by Jesus' ministry. Died, rose from the dead, walked around 40 days, appearing to who? A lot of people. More than 120? Probably. Before he ascends, he gives this little piece of advice. <laughs> Go and wait in Jerusalem. You're going to receive power. Only 120 showed up that day. Only 120. Many would say that was a sign of a very unsuccessful ministry. But how many of us really obey God? How many of us really do what Jesus is asking us to do on a regular basis? Obedience is critical. Ever read Gary Chapman's book, The Five Love Languages? You know, God's got a love language. It's called obedience. God's love language is obedience. Is obedience. When we obey him, great things will happen. We talked about this Wednesday night. The prerequisite for the day of Pentecost was obedience, wasn't it? They had to go. They had to wait. And they had to pray. And they prayed. And out of that obedience came the day of Pentecost. The 120 gathered. Only a few actually obeyed. Now, when I read this passage originally, I kind of had in my mind, you had this 120 men that kind of gathered there and they're sitting around their chairs in a stately, kind of like going to a monastery with maybe Franciscan monks. You know, they're all, they're all kind of around there. They're just, they're just kind of waiting, waiting for 10 days, waiting, waiting, waiting. Can I tell you, that was not the scene at all. Like Jeff likes to say, let's use our glorified imagination for a second. What's happening for 10 days with 120 people? Now I want you to see a verse that I have seen a million times, but I never really thought about it so much. In Acts 1.14, who was in that upper room? We know the apostles were there, obviously. These all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer, along with what? Oh my goodness. Along with the women and Mary and the mother of Jesus and with his brothers. So this 120 wasn't just the super spiritual elite gathered in the ivory tower waiting something for something special with them. Women were there. Now in that day, that was pretty darn significant. And guess what? If women were there, who else was probably running in and out of the door? Kids were there. You had families that had gathered in that upper room. It wasn't 120 Gandalf the Greys, right? It was... It was families that had gathered their men, their wives, their children coming and going. And we elaborated on this Wednesday night. They were coming and going. It was this electric environment. And what happens? The Holy Spirit comes and he in this moment begins to tear down all the gender walls. He chose a moment in time that was going to impact men, women, and children. And I believe if there was ever a destiny for the body of Christ in this hour, it's to tear down all those walls between men, women, and children. That's what we are believing for here. God chose to pour out His Spirit upon everybody. Thank you, Lord. Come on, no, think about it for a second. Many of us think when they spilled out of the upper room talking in tongues, many of us associate that with just men. Can I tell you women were doing it too? Come 
children, more than likely, because they're all getting filled at the exact same time. And it makes sense because Peter would get up and he would reference back to a prophetic word given by the prophet Joel a long time before when Joel would prophesy in Joel 2 and 28, right? And it shall come to pass after that I'll pour my spirit on what? All flesh, your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on the servants, the slaves, they would receive. Isn't that crazy? That in the, in the context of families, the Lord is pouring His Spirit out upon everybody. That's really good. The very home itself was impacted because families were gathered. Families were gathered. And one of the immediate net effects out of this in Acts 2.46 it says, day by day, they were continuing with one mind in the temple, breaking bread from house to house. They were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. In other words, it drove them right into the home. It drove them right into the home. Can I tell you something? If your home is not changed, you are not changed. If your home is not being changed by the power of the Holy Spirit, then there is really no change. You are what 1 Corinthians 13 talks about, a clanging gong when you exercise spiritual gifts apart from love. He moves in to the home, and the home begins to change. This isn't novel, isn't it? We know the Bible teaches us that if a man can't manage his own home, he can't manage the household of God. Do you think God's concerned about your home and your children and your marriages? One of the things that breaks my heart is we're seeing the, the, the eroding away of the home and marriages and, and, and children. And I'm just talking about inside the four walls of the church. Not even talking about outside. We can expect sinners to be sinners. But even the household of faith, we see such an absence of dedication to the power of God inside the home and family. It begins there. You see, if we're going to pray this audacious prayer, say, Lord, teach me your ways that I may know you, it implies that I'm going to do things your way, God, in order that I may know you. Many of us want the presence of God, but we don't want to do it His way. His presence, His way. Can you say that? His presence, His way. His presence, His way. And this is His way of doing things. The fire moves into your life. He transforms your heart. He begins to transform your home. Some of us need a baptism in the Holy Spirit, and you need to walk into, into, into your home. You need to cross the threshold, and you need to hold out both hands and say, In Jesus' name, I'm taking back my home. Come on. Woo! It really is. Some of, you need to, some of you need to walk up to your two-year-old in the high chair. I'm taking back my home. I'm taking it back. He may throw Cheerios in your face. I'm taking it back. You don't know how many times I have seen families being dictated to by three-year-olds and four-year-olds. Oh, Lord. Can I just get on that for a minute? Take it back. Some of you, listen, it's not that hard to get your four-year-old off of the throne in your home. Just, just, I'm, I'm, I'm going I'm to move you over, and I, this is my throne. I, I rule here. And God's calling us to do that. And it may require you give your precious child a spanking. God bless them. Spank them. If you're afraid to do it, I'll do it. Listen, I'll come to your house. I'll come to your house, and I will spank your child. I'll get you to sign about 20 forms in triplicate with my lawyer present. 
but I will voluntarily spank your child for you. It's going to take men and women of God filled with the Holy Spirit, their hearts are full, to walk in and say, I am taking it back. You may have to march around seven times. Your house may collapse from the shock. But do it for the glory of God, reinstituted in your home. The Holy Spirit is all over this, right? From heart to home. And then I think this is really cool. The Holy Spirit moves them into the highway. We know they were gathered in this upper room, not an ivory tower, a very probably uncomfortable place to be. They're all gathered. They're having this great experience. And what's the first thing they do? They spill into the streets and they start declaring the gospel, don't they? I think the Holy Spirit's getting something to us here. The tongues of fire were not initially given to enhance your prayer life with a personal prayer language. The tongues of fire were first manifested in the context of evangelism, of sharing the gospel with boldness. That was the context. We have created, by looking at it at a micro way, we just kind of want to manage tongues in our little small group or in our church services, and we slice it and we dice it, and we have boundaries, and we have all this. But it's like, God's like, are you really missing the whole point here? This is just a slice. The whole deal was this. I'm touching your tongue that you might proclaim the gospel with boldness and courage and power. That was the point. That was the whole point, and that's what we see first as they spill into the highway. The tongues of fire were initially all about sharing the gospel. You think this is convicting? It's convicting for me, isn't it? That I can come to church and I can speak in tongues during worship. I can speak in tongues in my little room, my little, wherever prayer closet, and then I'm too afraid to share the gospel with the waitress? Or I'm too afraid to enter into a conversation? You think something's wrong with that? Something terribly wrong with that, isn't it? Because one of the evidence of being filled with the Spirit is they proclaimed the Word of God with boldness, wasn't it? It caused us all to come back to ground zero and say, Lord, what are you doing? What are you doing? What are you doing here? What He's doing in us is not just about us. You get that? What He's doing in us is not just about us. It's bigger than that. It's larger than that. It's not as well that any should perish, but all come to eternal life. Does the Holy Spirit have your tongue? Does he have my tongue? I believe a litmus test for a move of the Spirit is a hunger to share your faith through your testimony. You don't know if you're living the Spirit-filled life or not. How often do you share in your faith with those around you, the unbelievers that I come in contact with? That, I think, is a much better gauge of the Spirit's power in your life and in my life as we follow the trajectory of the fire. I wanted to end a little earlier today because I wanted us to have some, some time, some time to pray. One of the things that they needed in the upper room was time. They needed 10 days. Why 10 days? I don't know. That's all it took, I guess. They needed time to come into the unity of the Spirit and the bond of faith in obedience to the words of Jesus to ask for something, to ask. It took them 10 days to get in harmony. <laughs> And then the Holy Spirit filled the entire room. You know, so many of us in our own Christian lives, we get stuck between the God who was and the God who will be. But it's the Holy Spirit that brings God the I am into the room. You know, religion is very content 
with you talking about the God who was. Religion is very content with you talking about the God who will be. Where religion gets rattled is when I am walks into the room. When Yahweh comes, the one who is here and now, the God who is in our very midst, the God who holds time in his hand, who exists outside of time, the God who orchestrated these 66 books in the Bible, one to begin in the garden, one to end in the garden, the complete circle of history, the God who looks at time, who knows not past, present, or future because all time exists for him in the eternal present. That this God is right now working in your past. God right now is working in your future. God now right now is working in your present. It's all present before him. When you encounter the I am, it will change you. It will send you back into your Egypt. It will send you back into your Egypt on a mission to not only deliver yourself, but deliver your people. That's what happens when you meet I am. Amen? I'd like the worship team to come and be ready to lead us. What you need, what I need, is an encounter with I am. With an encounter with Yahweh. For the Holy Spirit to break out amongst, amongst the people. We got on this Wednesday night a little bit, and listen, if I can just be real with you for a moment, I have been a Pentecostal preacher for 25 years. You know what that means? I've seen it all. I've seen it all, then some. We had some good laughs on Wednesday night about that. I've seen it all. Strange, the weird, the odd seen it all. I've actually experienced some weird stuff as well. But I can tell you in my, in my entire journey as a believer, everything I've seen could be wrapped up into, you know, a little here, a little there, a little down front in the corner, a little in the weekly prayer meeting. And one of the things that I so desperately that's on the heart of God is that I want to do more. I want to do more. And he is inviting people, sons and daughters. Three years, Jesus invited thousands into what he was doing. He walked around 40 days in a resurrected body, inviting people into what he was doing. And he gave them this very simple thing, go and wait and pray, and I'm going to send it. But unfortunately, on that day, only 120. Isn't that sad? That grieves my heart. How sad is that? How often have I been in the other crowd and not the 120? To simply obey what Jesus said and to see if he would not do exceedingly and abundantly more than we ever ask or think or imagine. I know I echoed this for Jeff and our elders. I believe this is the destiny of what Newbridge is doing and what God is doing in this region. This is what he's asking us to do. I don't want to go back to being satisfied with a little campfire over there or a little campfire over here or a little tiki light over there in the corner. I believe that God wants to move in such power in this day. It's going to shock us all. On men, on women, on children, 
who would gather in a single place in the single mindset under the prophetic leadership of Jesus' words to cry out for the promise of the Father. And when he comes, when he comes, the first thing he wants to get is your heart. Don't get lost in the tongues thing. We get so myopic on the tongues thing. He wants your heart. And yes, there will be an effect on your tongue, but it'll be a byproduct and will not be the product. Many of us are so, so worried about the tongues thing. Forget that. Forget the tongues thing. Let him get to your heart. Let him get to your heart. And then when it gets to your heart, it won't matter what you do then. Singing, dancing, that's what he wants. He's after your heart, and he's after my heart. So can I invite you to stand? Holy Spirit of God, we welcome you in this place. Lord, we have looked at your word. We have charted the course. We have followed the fire. And it brings us to a conclusion, Lord, that's very convicting. Lord, you want our tongue because our tongue is connected to our heart. Now the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. You called those 120 to, to pray, to use their tongue in calling out to you. At the beginning of the service, Lord, we said, why not here? Why not now? Why not here? Why not now, Lord? Whatever it takes, Lord, in this place with this people, whatever is required, whatever thing we need to walk through, Lord, to bring us into a place of unprecedented unity that's built upon the prerequisite of obedience, whatever it takes, Lord, we're willing to walk that path. Because, Lord, we just say we're not going to settle for a smidgen. We're not going to settle for the crumbs from the master's table. We're not going to settle for puddles when you've called us to swim in oceans. We're not going to settle for anything less than what you have. Because in this hour, Lord, you are looking for a people that you have declared over and the prophets looked into and said, there's coming a time when my people are going to rise and they're going to shine and the glory of the Lord will be upon them. And it will move through their heart. It'll move in their homes. It'll move in their marriages. It'll move in their children. It'll spill out into the highways and the byways with such courage and confidence that signs and wonders will follow us as we go. Lord, we may be running for our lives like Philip the Evangelist, but along the way, Lord, we're going to be telling of the goodness of God. Lord, the question you ask is the one you've always asked. <laughs> Will you follow me? Will you leave behind father, brother, sister, mother? Will you walk away from everything? And let go of what you think you have to take hold of everything. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 4 would wrap up this incredible thing about ministry. As he goes through this, don't do anything that the ministry might be discredited. And he goes through and says, you know, in sleepless nights, in tumults and difficulties and hungers, when people are spreading bad words about you. He's just going through all these things that are going to happen. But it gets down to the very end. And he says something that's so full of life. He says, in possessing nothing, we possess everything. Hear that for a second. In possessing nothing, we possess 
everything. The Lord wants us to get to the place of not possessing anything, but possessing nothing. What does that mean? That means things just moving in and out of your life very fluidly. Because the moment I tend to try to possess something, then I want to control something. And I want to manipulate something. But when I let go, I possess everything. This is what the Spirit of God desires to do in every single one of us. And can I tell you something? There's no loss. There's no loss. There's just gain in following Him.